Please take your Bibles and turn with me for one last time to Romans chapter 13. We have a few verses remaining in this chapter, and that's going to be our order of business today to finish off in Romans chapter 13, beginning in verse 11. Please follow along as I read this portion of God's Word for us. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. There you have it. Romans chapter 13, verses 11 through 14. Obedience, the subject of obedience looms large in Scripture. There are, I think I have told you this, mentioned this from the pulpit before, there are over 1,000 commandments in the New Testament, which means there are more commandments in the New Testament than in the Old Testament. That probably shocks some of us to hear that, but there are far more commandments in the New Testament than in the Old Testament. Obedience is front and center when it comes to the Christian faith. Here are three truths. I have declared them here before on occasion. I think it merits mentioning them again, and I can't promise that I won't mention them again at some point because they are extremely important. But three truths, please do not turn off after the first one or the second one, but here all three. They are a whole. They must be taken as a whole so that we are very clear, crystal clear on this subject, the place of obedience in the Christian's life. Here's the first truth I want to declare. Obedience is necessary for salvation. Okay? You've never heard that before? Stay with me, please. Stay with me. Obedience is necessary for salvation. Let me tweak it a little. Obedience is absolutely necessary for salvation. Absolutely necessary. The Son of Man will repay each person according to what he has done. Matthew 16, 27. Our own epistle, the book we've been studying for some time now. Romans 2, 6. God will render to each one according to his works. Have you got that? Obedience is necessary for salvation. Okay? Number two, listen very carefully. Obedience isn't necessary as the meritorious cause of salvation. Aha. Uh -huh. It isn't necessary as the meritorious cause of salvation. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. It's not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. Ephesians chapter 2. And so I say obedience is necessary for salvation. I am not saying it is the meritorious cause of salvation. I am not saying it is the basis upon which God saves us. 
I am not saying it is the reason for which God saves us. Obedience is necessary for salvation, point number one. But obedience isn't necessary as the meritorious cause of salvation. Now point number three, and this should round it out nicely, I hope. Obedience is necessary as the demonstrable evidence of salvation. The proof. The proof is in the pudding, right? It is the demonstrable evidence of salvation. Paul goes on to say in Ephesians 2, we are his workmanship, God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He says something similar in his epistle to Titus. He, Christ, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So good works are necessary for salvation. They aren't necessary as the meritorious cause of salvation. They are necessary as the demonstrable evidence of salvation. The flower on the bush. Picture it. The grape on the vine. The leaf on the tree. Are you with me? None of them give life to the plant. But all of them prove that the plant is alive. All right? Works are absolutely necessary for salvation as the demonstrable evidence that I am saved and justified alone by God's grace through faith in Christ. Why am I leading us down this pathway? Because it looms large in these chapters. Beginning in chapter 12, verse 1. You So having explained the gospel in the first 11 chapters, beginning in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul is applying it. And he gives a series of commands. He gives close to 40 commands in chapter 12. Commandments that we are to obey. He gives close to 20 commandments in chapter 13. Let me summarize them all for you in seven. Okay? I don't think this is a little presumptuous. I don't think this is too presumptuous. I think I can sum them up. This is how I've been processing all of this information, all of these commands. I basically group them and sum them up in the following manner. Number one, God commands me to present my body as a living sacrifice. He commands me to exchange my will for his will. He commands me to treasure his glory above all things. He insists that my personal sacrifice not my personal gratification, is the key to a blessed life. That's pretty good, eh? That's number one. Number two, God commands me to be transformed by the renewal of my mind. He commands me to think in an entirely different new way. Who am I? What am I doing? Where am I going? What do I want? God commands me to immerse myself in his word so that it determines my answers to these questions. That's number two. Number three, God commands me to think of myself with sober judgment. Sobriety is the opposite of drunkenness. To be sober is to be in touch with reality. God wants me to have an accurate perspective of myself. He commands me to see things clearly, who I really am. I'm weak in comparison to his power, 
I am foolish in comparison to his wisdom. I am helpless in comparison to his sovereignty. He commands me to pursue self-forgetting happiness in Christ. Number four, God commands me to outdo my fellow believers in brotherly affection. Commands me to prefer to serve rather than be served. Commands me to give attention to how I can help others rather than how they can help me. God commands me to seek to understand the inner world of other people. Get my eyes off myself and fix them upon others. Number five. God commands me to bless those who persecute me. Commands me to respond to aggression with compassion. Commands me to respond to hate with love. When I contemplate the cross... This is the only way. When I contemplate the cross, I am crushed to the ground. I am overwhelmed by God's love for me. And I am compelled to extend compassion to others. Mercy experienced is mercy practiced. Mercy received is mercy extended to others. Number six. God commands me to subject myself to the governing authorities. I am to recognize his common grace in the governing authorities. And I am to submit gratefully to them. I am to see this as a fruit of the gospel. I am to see that every act of subjection is actually an act of worship. And number seven, which brings us to last Sunday. God commands me to love my neighbor as myself. As myself, in terms of what I want and how I want it. If my concern is protecting my personal peace and affluence, I won't do this. If my main interest is pursuing my personal comfort and entertainment, I will not do this. God commands me to know my neighbor, serve my neighbor, protect my neighbor, pray for my neighbor, and expose my neighbor to his word. There you have it. A summary. In seven commands, groupings, of everything we've said, beginning, seen in beginning in chapter 12, verse 1, right through more or less to chapter 13, verse 10. It begs the, the obvious question, how can I do that? It looks, it looks so good on paper. It looks great on paper. Oh, just the way you rhyme them off right now, Stephen, that was wonderful. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds so nice. How do I do that? Where do I find the motivation to do that? The impetus. Paul gives us the impetus all the motivation we need in two places. The first place you already know, that is if you've been here for any time, you already know it, is back in chapter 12, verse 1. There is impetus number one, right there, chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, here it is, by the mercies of God. You'll never do any of this. You'll never obey in the way in which God calls you to obey as one of his children if you aren't basking, reveling, delighting daily in his mercies towards you. In other words, if you don't have a firm grasp on the gospel, and if you're not rehearsing it daily, and if you don't find yourself in the shadow of the cross daily, if you don't find yourself standing upon Christ's righteousness daily, if you aren't reminded daily of who you are in and of yourself and what God has done for you in pouring out his love for you in his son as he gave him as a sacrifice upon Calvary's cross, 
there will never be any motivation to obey. That is impetus number one. But he gives us a second impetus. Where, you ask? Where, 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 where? In the text that we're looking at today, chapter 13, verse 11. Besides this, okay, hold on. Don't look. Don't read the next one. Besides, besides what? What he, what he says in verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the feeling of the law. Besides this, you know. I, I, don't, I don't think he's thinking back to verse 10. I don't think he's even thinking back to that section, verses 8 through 10. I'm inclined to think. I mean, grammatically, it is tricky. In the original, it is tricky. Besides this, what's the antecedent? What's he thinking back to? I'm inclined to think he's going all the way back to chapter 12, verse 1. Besides this, everything I've said, all of these commandments I've given to you. Besides this, okay, here's impetus number two. I've given you impetus number one, the mercies of God, back in chapter 12, verse one. Here's the second impetus, motivation to obey. Besides this, you know the time. That's it. There's the motivation to obey. There's the motivation to respond. To all that the Spirit of God has dictated through the pen, the instrumentality of the Apostle Paul, beginning in chapter 12, verse 1, right up to this point, chapter 13, verse 10. Besides this, you know the time. You know this. You know something about the time. And there is something very compelling about what you know about the time. There is something very motivating. There is something that grabs you, stirs you, compels you, drives you, related to what you know about the time. What do we know? He mentions three things. Let me just give them to you at the outset. That are in verse 11 to the middle of verse 12. And then I'll go back and just explain each just briefly. Here's what we know, the first thing. Besides this, you know the time. Here we go. Number one, that the hour has come for you to wake up. Wake up from sleep. Okay, that's the first thing we know about the time. Here's the second thing, reading on in verse 11. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. And here's the third thing we know about the time. Brings us into the 12th verse. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. There's all the motivation you need to obey. You know the time. The first thing you know is that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. What's his point? I think his point is simply this. When we sleep, we are not aware of anything going on around us, are we? It's worse than that. When we sleep, we dream. And I'm sure, I'm certain you've had this experience, that there are some dreams, like, you think you're there. For those moments, they become your reality. And even when you wake up suddenly... When you're in one of those deep, that deep, deep sleep and one of those dreams, even when you wake up suddenly, it takes time, doesn't it, to realize, oh, yeah, it was just a dream. And you shake it off and you enter into 
reality what's really going on. And so I think that's what Paul is saying here. Look, knowing the time, you know it is the hour that it is now that you can't walk around in a haze. You can't sleepwalk. You can't mistake realities. I think it goes all the way back to chapter 12, verse 2. I think, I think this idea of sleeping has the idea of being conformed to the spirit of this world. To be conformed to the thinking of this world. No, it's time. The hour is now for you to wake up. And understand the world you have been living in is actually not reality. There is something far greater going on. And you're walking around with your head in the clouds. You're walking around in a dream. Dare I say it. You are walking around in a stupefied state. And you think it's real. It's not real. The hour has come to wake up. Second thing he says is this, because salvation, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. I've said this too from the pulpit. It bears repeating. My friend, if you are a Christian, you are only partly saved. As a Christian, I am only partly saved. Yes, God has redeemed me, but I am awaiting redemption. God has adopted me, I am awaiting adoption. God has saved me. I am awaiting salvation. That yes, something happened at a moment of time in my life when God bent low by the Spirit of God caused me to be born again with power from on high. I believed in the Lord Jesus. I repented of my sin. Yes, at that moment, I was redeemed. I was saved. I was adopted. And I now possess by right all that Christ purchased for me through his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension. But I have not yet entered into my reward fully. I possess it by right. By right, I am already seated with Christ in the heavenly places where God has blessed me with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. It is mine by divine right, owing to my position in Christ. But I am awaiting the consummation of my salvation. I think that's Paul's point here. Yes, you're adopted. I mean, he said that back in chapters, chapter 8, didn't he? Yes, you're saved. Yes, you're redeemed. No doubt about it. But understand, you're only partly saved. Yes, it's yours. You own it. You possess it in Christ, by right, by covenant, by promise. But you have not yet entered into the consummation of your salvation. But you are closer today than you were yesterday. You are nearer today than the first day you believe. The third thing we know concerning the time, verse 12, the night is far gone. The day is at hand. You expand and you look at Paul's writings in their entirety and you ask, okay, he's conjuring up a mental image here. Where's he going with it? What's he getting at? Please remember, always remember, that insofar as Paul is concerned, insofar as the Bible is concerned, there are two ages. We must grasp this. Grasp it firmly. There are two ages. The Bible speaks of the present age. It is an age that began when Adam and Eve sinned, rebelled, back in the Garden of Eden. 
It is the fallen world. It is fallen humanity. It is the fallen cosmos. And that present age will continue until Christ's second coming. But there is the age to come. What is that? The new age. Inaugurated by Christ himself. When did it begin? The new creation. It began at his first coming. And so there is an overlap between these two ages. There is an overlap between the present age and the age to come. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10. Now these things happen to them. That is to Israel. This verse actually relates quite nicely to what we're looking at in Sunday school presently. Listen carefully to this. Now these things happen to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. In Paul's day, first century, New Testament church, the end of the ages has come. You see that future age, the age to come, has already broken into the present age by virtue of Christ's crucifixion, resurrection, ascension and our exaltation we are simply we are simply as his people waiting for him to return and when he returns the present age will completely pass away he will usher in a new heavens and a new earth and the eternal age will begin and i think that's what paul has in view here verse 12 the night is far gone Understand this, the present age is far gone. Yes, it's still present with us. Yes, we still live in the midst of it. But understand, Christ has already dealt with it. And the day, yes, we're in the final ages. We are awaiting his return. The day is at hand. His point is simply this. The eternal kingdom will break in at any moment. That's his point. You know this. Besides this, you know the time. You know the time that it's right about time, the hour, for you to wake up from your stupor. You know that salvation is nearer to us, what's coming. You know what's coming than when we first believed. And you know everything's happened that needs to happen by virtue of his crucifixion, resurrection, exaltation, at the right hand of God, the God most high. You know all of that has happened and the age to come has already been inaugurated. And you know at any moment, there is nothing stopping it on any elaborate prophetic program. At any moment, the eternal kingdom is going to break in. There is all the motivation you need for obeying. How do I know that? Look at what he says in the middle of the 12th verse. So then. So I've just explained what you know. You've got a firm grasp on this. This is the reality in which you live. You know this is true. You have a firm grasp on time. Time as dictated and explained in the light of Scripture. So then. Here's what you're to do. It will give you the motivation to act, the motivation to respond. What we do, 
and he utters three commands. Let me just give them to you briefly. I'll go back and explain each of them. Here's the first, middle of verse 12, so then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. That's number one, first thing we do. Second thing we do, verse 13, let us walk properly as in the daytime, right? The age to come, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. The third response, what we do, verse 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. To gratify its desires. Now, I want you to get this. Before we go back and look at each in, in a little detail. Three commands. Notice there are double phrases, sentences in each. There is a positive statement and a negative statement. And it's the positive and the negative coupled together that constitute the whole. And so the first commandment back in verse 12 so then let us, here's the negative part, cast off the works of darkness. You want a good list of that? Go back to chapter 1, the last three or four verses. Let us cast off, that's the negative, the works of darkness. Here's the positive with which he couples it and put on the armor of light. What's the armor of light? You go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8. And Paul speaks there of the Christian's armor and the great triad. Those three great Christian virtues of faith, hope, and love. So you've got the negative, you've got the positive. This is how we respond to what we know about the time. The second response into verse 13. Notice again, you've got positive, negative. This time he begins with the positive. Let us walk properly as in the daytime. We know the time. We know the hour has come for us to wake up. We know our salvation is nearer today than it was yesterday. We know the present age is passing away. The light of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ himself has come. And we know that eternal kingdom is at hand. Therefore, let us walk properly as in the daytime. And then he couples it with the negative. Three groupings in the negative. The rest of verse 13. Not in orgies and drunkenness. What's his point there? He's warning against inordinate desire for stimulation, experience, feeling. The second grouping there, not in sexual immorality and sensuality. There he is warning against inordinate desire for pleasure. And then the third grouping at the end of verse 13, not in quarreling and jealousy. There he is warning against what? Inordinate desire for attention. That's it. The works of the flesh. Inordinate, skewed desire. Warped, twisted desire for stimulation, for pleasure, for attention. No, here's the positive. Walk properly as in the daytime. Here's the negative by way of example. Not in orgies and drunkenness. Not in sexual immorality and sensuality. Not in quarreling and jealousy. And then the third command in verse 14. Again, positive and negative grouped together in the one command. He begins with the positive. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the negative. And make no provision for the flesh. Fallen, sinful human nature. 
to gratify its desires. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm a Christian. I thought I'd already put them on. Isn't that what makes me a Christian? You go back to Romans 6, isn't that what he says? We've been baptized into his death, his burial, his resurrection. We've become one with him. Haven't I already put on Christ? Yes. Now, the moment God took hold of me by the Holy Spirit, and I believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, I became one with him. That is union with Christ. One with him. Knit together. Married together. Glued together, if you like. Inseparable. And the wonder of this union is as follows. It means that God sees us as one. We're one. Which means what? Everything about me now belongs to Christ. Well, he's paid the penalty for all that stuff on Calvary's cross. He bore God's judgment then. So insofar as God is concerned, because we're one, the penalty for my sin has been paid in full and I am now just in God's sight. But wonder of wonders is not only that all my sinfulness and everything else is reckoned to Christ and he pays the penalty for it in full, it now means that everything that is wonderful and true about the Lord Jesus Christ is now mine. I get it. I mean, if ever there was a bad deal, right? I mean, what a bad deal. What a great deal for sinners. That Christ gets all our sin. We get all his righteousness. And therefore, we become the beloved of God in Jesus Christ. I put him on. Oh, believe you me. When I was saved and I believed in him as my Lord and Savior. So what is Paul saying here? Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. I think his point is simply this. Yeah, I know. I haven't forgotten what I said back in chapter 6 that you've put him on. My point now is this. Live like it. Act like you're wearing him. You say you are. Act like it. Conduct yourself accordingly. You have put him on. You are clothed in his righteousness. The penalty for your sin is paid in full. Now I want you to live it out in your daily experience. You know, I, I think the idea is this. Can you imagine? Can you imagine how silly it would be to see someone, a man dressed in, in an expensive suit, maybe even a tuxedo. And so he looks the part. He looks like he's ready for a wedding. Or he certainly looks like he's ready for some great, significant, momentous engagement. How silly it would be to see him playing hopscotch out there in the parking lot. He's not really dressed for the part, is he? That's Paul's point here. Christian, you're wearing certain clothes right now. You're dressed in someone right now. You look a certain part right now. You have a certain, I don't know, about you. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Now put him on daily and live accordingly. And as you do that, make no provision. Don't even give, it literally means first thought. Make no provision. Don't even give it the first thought for the flesh. To gratify its desires. There is the threefold response. What we do with what we know concerning the time, going back into verses 11 through 12. Now, what I want to do is give you some examples of this. Examples of how this plays out 
uh, illustrations of what this looks like. I've limited myself to three because I think these three are pretty, pretty comprehensive. And if we get these three, we get the gist of it. We get the main thought here. And illustrations are always helpful. How exactly does this, does this work out? So let me give you three illustrations of these verses in practice. Here we go. Number one, you're tired. Mentally, physically, emotionally. Take your pick. You are bored. You're tired. You're bored. Uh, You're discouraged. Something has happened. Doesn't matter what. Something has happened. You're discouraged. Dream hasn't come true. Fill in the blank. Whatever you want. Okay. You are a prime candidate for number one in verse 12. Let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Verse 13, sorry. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. When we find ourselves overcome, tired, bored, discouraged, we become prime candidates for the first sin that Paul has warned against. The point is this. Our response is this. We must recognize the time. Here's our response. We must recognize the time. Uh, That expression, really, as you have it there in the middle of verse 12, the day is at hand. Second thing we must do is this. Put on Christ. Verse 14, live in the reality of who we are in Christ. Remind ourselves of our position in him, our high calling in him. The third thing is this, make no provision for the flesh. Make no provision for the flesh. In other words, don't daydream about finding relief in some sort of substance-induced experience. There's the first couplet, remember, not in orgies and drunkenness. When we find ourselves tired, we find ourselves bored, we find ourselves discouraged, we become become prime candidates for what? Seeking some sort of stimulation in something. Here is our response. We must recognize the time, the day is at hand. We must put on Christ. We must make no provision for the flesh. Don't daydream. Make no provision. Don't let your thoughts go there. About finding relief in some sort of substance-induced experience. And then fourthly, we must walk properly as in the daytime. There's example number one. Here's example number two. You're frustrated. Doesn't matter what about the cause. It's irrelevant. You're frustrated. You're unloved. At least you feel unloved. You feel unappreciated. All right. You are a prime candidate for that second couplet in verse 13. Not in sexual immorality and sensuality. A prime couplet for seeking what? Inordinate pleasure. Here's how we respond. Recognize the time. The day is at hand. Put on Christ, a rehearsal of those great truths as we find them back there in Romans 6. 
Make no provision for the flesh. Don't give it the first thought. Don't start to indulge. Don't daydream about romantic encounters or how much better your life would be if you were in a relationship with that person. Don't lose yourself in some silly fantasy world. Make no provision for the flesh. Fourthly, walk properly as in the daytime. Here's the third example illustration. You're self-preoccupied. Me, 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 me. Self-absorbed. Related to that, perhaps you've been wronged or you have been rejected. It makes you, it makes me a prime candidate for the third couplet right at the end of verse 13. Quarreling and jealousy. How am I to respond? I hope you're getting the idea by now. Recognize the time. The day is at hand. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh. Don't give it the first thought. Don't daydream about what you think you are owed. Don't daydream about what, how you think your life should turn out or what you think you deserve. Don't daydream about the person you think has wronged you. Make no provision for the flesh. But fourthly, walk properly as in the daytime. That is the response, threefold response, the casting off the works of darkness, the putting on of the armor of light, the walking properly as in the daytime, not in that threefold description as we find it there in verse 13, and putting on the Lord Jesus Christ and therefore making no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Oh, do not miss Paul's central point. I mean, he makes a good number of points in this text, doesn't he? But let us not miss his main, chief, central point. Right there back at the start of verse 11. Besides this, you know the time. Paul's assumption is what? That it's going to make a difference. Paul's assumption is what? That our knowledge... Of this reality, time, from a biblical perspective, will grip us in such a manner, in such a way, that our response will be as he has described, not only in verses 12 through 14, but going all the way back to chapter 12, verse 1, and that list of 55, 60 commandments he's given us. And when I find myself, well, I don't feel like doing that. I'm not very motivated to do that. Oh, well, I can't do that. Paul's remedy is what? Yes, the mercies of God. As he reminds us in chapter 12, verse 1, pointing us back to the earlier portions of the epistle. And his answer is what? Our knowledge of the time, given the fact that the eternal kingdom could break in at any moment, including today, that we then realize that our salvation is much closer than when we believed. Therefore, there is only one logical conclusion. The hour has come for me to wake up from my sleep and take a good look around. And really understand what's real, what's valuable, what will last, what will perish. 
And the Spirit of God uses that to give me all the impetus I need to respond in love to love. In obeying all those commandments that Paul has given us in these chapters. I'll tell you, it was a, it was a moment in my life. I look back. I can look back, and I'm sure you can relate to this. I can look back, and, and there are certain pivotal moments, maybe five or six. I look back on, on life. When, when something happened, uh, a text of Scripture, something happened, but truth, the truth of God's Word became real to me in a way it had never been prior to that moment and how it changed perspective, worldview. And I can remember one such occasion. It's going back almost 20 years ago now. And this brother, I don't remember the whole sermon, but he was preaching out of Psalm 90. And this was the text he camped out on and really labored over. Teach us, it's a prayer. Oh, teach us to number our days. God, teach us to number our days. Why? That we may get a heart of wisdom. That we might really be smart that we might really be discerning, that we might really have a biblical perspective. Oh, I remember wrestling with this, wrestling with the fact that time is short. James 4, 14, you are a mist. We don't like to hear this, but we know it's true. You are a mist. You are a vapor that appears for a little time and then poof, vanishes. Time is uncertain. Proverbs 27, 1, do not boast about tomorrow. You do not know what a day may bring. Oh God, give me wisdom. Cause me, enable me, teach me to number my days that I might truly understand. Verse 12, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. Working backwards that I might truly understand that salvation is nearer to me now than when I first believed. Working backwards that I might realize today, right now, and I know this applies to some of you. I know, perhaps just a small handful, but I am speaking to you. The hour has come for you to wake up. Wake from your sleep. And get a biblical perspective and view on the times. That's true for us as Christians. Let me just get to that in a moment. It's certainly true for any unbelievers here. You need to understand, my friend, and I say this lovingly. If you're not a Christian, you're sleepwalking right now. No one's laughing at you. But you are sleepwalking. You are completely out of touch with reality. As God describes dictates and ordains reality. Oh, my exhortation to you is to wake up. It is to understand that this life is passing. This life is fleeting. And there is something of far greater consequence going on than meets the eye. There is a triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, who is determined to glorify himself in the salvation of sinners. And he has made provision for their salvation, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, becoming man, the Lord Jesus Christ, and bearing the penalty 
for sinners upon Calvary's cross. And this great God now commands every man, every woman, every boy, every girl under the sun on this earth right now to repent of their sin and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to the eternal glory of his grace and mercy. That is reality. This present age is passing. It has been dying ever since the fall. The new age has already dawned by virtue of Christ coming into this world. And we are simply awaiting his return. If you are not a Christian, hear me please. And I pray the Spirit of God will give you eyes to see and ears to hear. It is time for you to wake up. Wake up. And see reality and understand the world in which you find yourself and the urgency of the moment that God has given but one mediator, one means, one way of salvation. And it is found in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Oh, but you know something, even as Christians, we're not out of the woods, are we? Yeah, okay, we awakened from our sleep. But some of us still walking around at times in a self-induced self condition of sleep. Our struggle is what? It's to stay awake. Stay awake. Uh, I say this with some reservation. I hope you understand what I mean by it. Far too many of us are taking sleeping pills. I don't mean literally sleeping pills. I'm speaking figuratively. We take too many sleeping pills. Too much entertainment will lull us to sleep. Too much media will rock us slowly to sleep. Too much indulgence, too much laziness, too much greed, too much pursuit of world things, possessions, too much pursuit of fantasy, living in a world of fantasy. Oh, the list goes on. And the sleeping pills, sleeping pills, sleeping pills that even Christians take and end up just kind of just walking around in a fog. Everything's kind of hazy. Not really quite sure why they're here, what's going on, or where they're going. Well, my friend, they need to stay awake, to know the time, to understand that salvation is nearer now at the end of this sermon than it was when I began, to understand that the new age has dawned, and we are simply awaiting the return of our Lord, the return of our Savior, the return of our King. We are to imagine, here is our calling, the challenge as Christians. We are to imagine each and every day as if this were the one in which the light will dawn and the Savior will come and we are to live accordingly. Oh, what's really important? What really matters? What will last? What will perish? How then should I live? Oh, teach me, God, be merciful. Teach me to number my days. Number them so that I might have a heart of wisdom. Our Father, that is our collective prayer as your children this day. You've been merciful to us in so many ways. Faithful in, so, in such wondrous ways. Patient, long-suffering, 
And for this, we do give you thanks. We are so thankful we stand in your sight, accepted not because of anything we've ever done, anything we're presently doing. We stand accepted in your sight because of your beautiful son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that we have put him on and we find ourselves as Christians clothed in his perfect righteousness this day. Oh, but help us, we pray. Help us to live for you. Help us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not because we feel oppressed by any spirit of legalism. Not because we feel oppressed by any fear that there is something out there, something bad that's going to happen if we don't respond. But simply in the light of your mercies. That as we take stock, remember who you are, what you have done for us. That we would truly understand that our only reasonable response is to present our lives as living sacrifices. We do pray that you would help us in this regard. Be merciful by your spirit, we ask it. And we seek it in the matchless name of Christ. Amen.